couple of days ago, and um, I was joking with him that we get nervous when we have a 16-year-old who gets their permit, and we have to get out on the roads, and Bruce is taking 19 and 20-year-olds up in the airplanes for the first time, and then teaching them how to, how to land and take off around mountains and all kinds of crazy stuff like that. So I wonder, do you go on roller coasters, or is that too boring for you? Um, we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 58 this morning. We're continuing on in this uh, Living the Gospel series. And each week we've been taking a, a key word that takes us a little bit deeper into thinking through how do we not just understand the gospel, but how do we live it out? What does God want us to do if we're embracing this kingdom mentality where Jesus came talking about the kingdom of God coming into this world? And every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray those amazing words, thy kingdom come. You know, may your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're, we're thinking through how do we live out kingdom values in the broken world in which we find ourselves here. Isaiah is going to give us uh, some thoughts from, from the Lord himself. Here's what it says. God is speaking through Isaiah. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Let's pray for a moment. Lord God, thank you for the opportunity we have today and every week to come together and to worship you to sing songs that are full of joy and gladness over the way that you have broken forth and brought your redemption into our lives. We long to know your peace in every corner of this world, not only in our own lives, but all around us, affecting the people that we know and care about and work with, affecting the systems of this world. But we recognize we, we live in this tension between the, the victory that you've achieved on the cross and what will finally be fulfilled only when Jesus comes again. And so we ask that you will continue to guide us and grant us wisdom and courage and strength to figure out increasingly how we live as citizens of your kingdom in the midst of the time we find ourselves in, in the midst of the world we find ourselves in. God, this week we ask that you will continue to to grant us help, wisdom, insight, and discernment for the variety of decisions that we must make 
to know how we deal with the people that we will, will meet and come in contact with this week as we think through uh, what we get involved in, how we vote, uh, how we talk to the neighbor down the street, how we share our faith, or when those moments come when we sense that it's, it's not right yet and it's better to hold back. We pray that you'd give us great wisdom in knowing how we represent you in this world. Give us the courage to do the things you ask us to do and not to shrink back. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, pastoral note, there, there's a note inside the, the bulletin this morning acknowledging that uh, sad news that uh, Jeanette Langloy uh, died very suddenly uh, earlier this week. She was on a trip to Barbados and she was hit and killed by a car. And uh, I spoke with her son, Fred Hayden, on Friday afternoon after our bulletin was printed. And they want to have a memorial here on Friday, November 10th. So uh, keep posted that. For those of you who are uh, friends of Jeanette and Emery, who we, we just buried in July, uh, this is very sad news to, to see this happen so quickly. Question. Are you familiar with the peace prayer of St. Francis? It's most often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, even though it is absent from his writings. People who are part of the Franciscan order note that one common disappointment comes when students discover that Francis probably didn't write the prayer and that it is very different from the style of writings that he left behind. However, many people have come to know and, and love this prayer. Many of our 12-step friends uh, think of this as the Step 11 prayer. But it reads like this, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Despite various questions about the Peace Prayer's authorship, it is loved and recited frequently by a variety of Christian and even non-Christian groups today. Perhaps the reason this prayer is so well-loved and revered is due to the way that it ties together our hope for peace and eternal life with the way that other people are to be treated. I chose to begin with this peace prayer this morning as we continue our Living the Gospel series because today's topic has to do with the relationship between living the gospel and justice. And so there are some questions that immediately rise when we raise a theme like that. Today's key word is justice, and this word prompts two questions. What is the relationship between our faith and how we treat our neighbors? And along with that, what is the relationship between the gospel and the justice we strive for in this world? Some people see them as completely separate, but I dare say that the Bible ties them together in an amazing way. There's one Hebrew word that I want you to focus on as we talk about justice. It's the Hebrew word shalom. Can you say that with me? Shalom. Most of you have heard that word, right? We think of it as meaning peace, 
But in our English language, our word peace doesn't really do justice to the conversation or, or the concept of shalom. Peace in, in our world means uh, the absence of war or the absence of his hostility. But shalom means much, much more than that. In the Old Testament, uh, we find that uh, shalom is one of the dominant concepts that comes up whenever the theme of justice rises. And this dominant Old Testament word for peace it means much more like um, complete health or total flourishing of a society, physically, relationally, socially, and spiritually as well. So in order to get to an understanding of the biblical concept of justice and shalom, we're going to turn to the Old Testament book of Isaiah this morning. More than any other prophetic book in the Old Testament, Isaiah is quoted frequently by Jesus and by the apostles in the New Testament. The last section of Isaiah, uh, making up chapters 56 through 66, were written to guide the Israelites who had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild their homeland after the years of their exile to Babylon. The exile to Babylon was now over, and a large group had returned, and they were in the process of not only rebuilding the walls of the city, but rebuilding a whole society because everything had been torn down in Jerusalem. Injustice and spiritual unfaithfulness had brought Israel to the point of ruin and ridicule and even God's judgment. Now, 70 years later, as they returned to the land, God was looking to restore the bonds of faith and justice amidst his people. As British Old Testament scholar Henry Webb puts it, or Barry Webb puts it, they had the beginnings of what God had promised, but not the fulfillment of it. That's very much the scenario we find ourselves in today. We have the beginnings of God's promises, and we, we benefit from many of them, and yet we live in this tension uh, between the uh, already that has been accomplished and the not yet of what God will yet do in the future but has not yet uh, completed. So in a very real sense, this final section of Isaiah is about how we live while we are waiting for a new world. Friends, this is exactly where we find ourselves today as Christians. Christ has come and he has redeemed his people. By faith, we hold on to the promises of God, but we don't yet see the fulfillment of all that God has promised, all that God has for us. Therefore, we live as subjects of God's kingdom now while we are waiting for the new world that Jesus will inaugurate when he returns. So the question we have is the same one the people of Israel were wrestling with during their return from the exile. How do we live as kingdom people while we wait for the new world that comes when Jesus brings all things to fulfillment? And in order to gain some answers to that question, we're going to listen to Isaiah. Four things that God says to the prophet Isaiah. Here's the first thought. God calls us to justice. He calls us to justice and he calls us to be people of justice. Isaiah 56, 1, at the beginning of this uh, 11 chapter section, at the end of Isaiah's uh, book, says, Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. This final section of Isaiah begins with this call to justice. To maintain means that we must manage or administrate justice in the world. That is part of the calling of God's people. When we maintain something, we keep it going, we promote it, and we have the responsibility to manage it well. 
So right away, in beginning this section, uh, this final section of uh, Isaiah's book, the Lord ties the concept of justice to salvation. The Lord says, maintain justice, do what is right. And the Lord is saying, in effect, if you are people of salvation, if you are redeemed by God, then it will show up in the way that you bring justice to bear in the midst of the troubling world that you find yourselves in. Here's the second thought that builds on the first one. God links justice to our worship. So we come to this passage in Isaiah 58 that I read a few moments ago. Verse 6 at the outset has God speaking and he's asking a question. And the people had been fasting for a period of time, the people of, of Israel, and they were calling on God to work within their society, within uh, their social systems, and they weren't getting the sense that God was answering their prayers. And they're wondering, what's wrong? We're fasting and we're doing more and more religious stuff. What's wrong? And here's God's answer to them through Isaiah. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? So what was going on here? This chapter reveals that the people who were restoring life in Israel were very religious people. And for them, the answer to the world's problems was more and more seriousness, more and more structure to the way that they worshiped God. And they cried out to God, why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed it? And, and they think that God is, is doing something wrong, that God is not giving them what should be coming their way. God's answer then shows up in Isaiah 58, verse 3. He says, yet, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all of your workers. In effect, God was saying that heartfelt worship practices are worthless if they are not accompanied by the inner changes inside of a person that causes that person to seek after shalom for other people, the well-being, the flourishing of even their neighbors, or in this case, their employees. So he's saying, something's wrong. You guys have all the worship services going. You're lifting hands to God. You're, you're fasting and going out without food so that you pray more, but you're ignoring basic instructions that I gave you a long time ago. You're cheating your neighbors. You're cheating your workers. And I will not answer your prayers. I will not pay attention to your fasting and all of your religious stuff until you do the basic things I've asked you to do. This is very relevant for us today. American Christianity went through a divisive period a number of years ago in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. The movement that was called theological liberalism was raging in Europe and it began to hit North America. That movement began to separate the gospel of Jesus Christ from history and fact saying that it doesn't really matter if Jesus really died or really rose again or if the disciples really wrote the letters of the New Testament. All that is important is that the attitude and spirit of Christ somehow rises in your hearts. You see what's happening there? They were divorcing the historical Jesus from the way that faith was being taught. And the emphasis of Christian life for this movement was upon social justice. Let's stop talking about salvation from sin. Let's stop talking about the history of what Jesus did. Let's just be good people and we'll do good things. There was a response to that. 
conservative or traditional Christians reacted against theological liberalism in two ways. First, they articulated and defended the beliefs of historic Christianity. They, in effect, said, we want to stand with Jesus and the apostles. Second, they tended to circle the wagons and to avoid doing whatever liberal Christians did. There was a term that got coined in that period of time that described the conservative or traditional Christians. It was the term fundamentalism. And biblical fundamentalism was really coined to describe a, a large gathering, a, a multi-denominational gathering of Christians who stood for historic fundamentals of the faith. And initially, it was a very positive movement that was restoring the original focus of early Christianity to the church. However, over time, that became a, a movement and a culture where people started judging each other whether they were fundamentalistic or enough, and it had a negative tone to it. So much so that in our society today, the word fundamentalism almost always has a negative association. And it, it got lifted away from a Christian element even to describing uh, the most radical of Muslims or the most radical of people of some other faith who want to impose something that is controlling and negative and that's dark. Does that make sense to you? You follow me so far? Now, for those of you who, who don't come from a Protestant background, and I, re I realize we're a huge mix here, uh, this whole movement hit the Roman Catholic Church in the 1960s when Swiss theologian Hans Kung began to teach that the virgin birth and the divinity of Christ were just myths. We don't really have to believe any of these old doctrines, same stuff. If you just sort of believe that Jesus rose in your heart and that he creates a new spirit within you, that's enough. And it was divorcing biblical Christianity from the way that people were being taught to live out their faith. Now, th this, this frustration, this, this conflict, split all kinds of Christian movements all across uh, the spectrum. And it created a false divide between orthodox Christian beliefs and working for gospel justice among many Christians. That didn't affect all. Historically, black churches tended to avoid this divide. A number of the, the black church leaders said, you know what? We've always been a maligned people. We've always had it harder. Uh, we see this as integral to the gospel that we'll reach out and we'll help our neighbors. Predominantly white Protestant churches tended to shy away from anything that was labeled as a social gospel effort. The notion that God cares about biblical justice more than fasting and worship practices comes as a wake-up call then to every group that adopts this false divide. And there are a number of people who recognized it was a false divide and tried to put the two back together again. I'll give you some for instances here. Billy Graham began to reject that false divide with his crusades in the 1950s and 1960s. Seeing the plight of the poor as he went around the world, he brought in World Vision to partner with him so that World Vision would take care of practical needs and feed the poor at the same time that they were delivering the gospel. And he saw them as, as integrally tied, that in order to give out the freedom of the gospel, we have to be willing to meet some basic needs so that people can survive. While he later regretted not marching for civil rights, Mr. Graham invited Martin Luther King to preach with him at his New York City crusade in the 1950s. And he personally tore down the rope barriers that were put up to separate black and white people when he spoke to audiences in the Deep South. 
And the reason was that he believed that gospel-impacted people demonstrate their relationship with our redemptive God by redeeming broken systems in order to bring them into greater and greater alignment with God's kingdom values. Does that make sense to you? So, so what we're saying here is there is a necessary tie between really understanding the gospel and how we live out the implications of the gospel amidst our neighbors, our co-workers, and everybody else. What we cannot do if we really believe the gospel is say, this is just for me. Let's circle the wagons and draw in the tents really closely, and, and let's just kind of hide here in the holy huddle and not impact our world. What God was calling the people of Israel to do all the way back through Isaiah some 2,400 years ago or 2,500 years ago was that when our beliefs tie us to a life-changing relationship with God, that it compels us outward. It compels us toward our neighbors. Third thought. The first is that God calls us to justice. The second is God links justice to our worship and even tells us that our worship is ineffective if it's not tied to the way that we live it out. Here's the third thought that builds on that. We hear Isaiah's call through Jesus. Verse 7, God is speaking, and again he goes on and he says, Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to, harm, not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? He's saying, isn't this the, the true fasting that I have chosen? The challenge to not turn away is reflected in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus was asked, what must I do to gain eternal life? And his answer was, do the great commandment. Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus taught the parable of the Good Samaritan on the heels of that. A priest and a worship leader are walking down the road where there's a man who's been beaten and left, by, left for dead by some robbers. And each one goes through this mental process as they're seeing this man lying in the road. And they're saying, either I'm too busy or what if somebody jumps out of the bushes and attacks me? It's somebody else's job and they walk on by. And they, the implication is they're heading to the temple or they're heading to the synagogue. They're going to go on and have more worship. And then Jesus points out that a Samaritan businessman who is the most unlikely character for a Jewish person to think that this is the one who would help, this Samaritan businessman tends to the needs of the wounded man in the street, goes out of his way to help him, and even provides for his care while he goes on for his, his business trip. And at the end of the parable, Jesus asks, the man who had originally asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, which one was truly the neighbor? Was it the priest? Was it the worship leader? Or was it the good Samaritan? And he says, the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus makes the point, go and do likewise. As if to say, this is the point of the parable that we will copy the same kind of positive instruction that Jesus was giving out, that this is essential to the gospel. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus gave this troubling picture of the day when his kingdom comes. He pictured the Son of Man separating people as a shepherd 
separates sheep from goats at nighttime so that they won't be butting heads against each other. His sheep are those who not only understand the gospel, but who also embrace the life of shalom for all toward which the gospel compels us. Jesus even says, whatever you've done for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it for me. And whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And so that theme is echoed here in the words that we see. Is it, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away. And so Jesus uh, poses the questions within the midst of that parable. Lord, when did we see you naked or hungry or, or in prison? And he says, well, uh, when any of these other people that you could have helped were there, uh, if you didn't do that, you didn't do that to me. And if you did, then you did that to me. He personalizes uh, this whole scenario. And so Jesus is building upon Isaiah. The same themes that Isaiah is talking about in chapter 58 show up in the parables of Jesus again and again, leading us to this idea that biblical social justice is not necessarily picking up every cause or every movement that comes along, but it is working to bring this broken world further into alignment with God's vision and God's values, even as Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are dangerous words which compel us into action again and again, telling us we can't have a faith that hides in the corners, that hides in the safety of just being amongst each other. It compels us outward. So here's the big idea for this morning that is running through this message. Those who truly understand the gospel not only believe, but they also embrace the life of shalom for all. That we want to see that, that restoration, that restoring kind of peace of God, not only for ourselves, but also for our neighbors, for those who look like us and talk like us, for those who don't as well. As I was thinking this through, I realized this connects very neatly with our vision statement as a church. Over the last year, we sharpened that and tightened that up, and, and this is our vision statement. People who are forever changed, who are being forever changed by God's love and daily changing the South Shore and beyond for Jesus. What's caught up in that vision statement is a recognition that when we truly understand the gospel, we are forever permanently changed from the inside out, but that pushes us in motion to want to share that with everybody else that we meet. Now, that doesn't mean that we're always talking about the gospel of Jesus, that we're always shoving Jesus down everybody's throat. There are times when it's the right moment, when you've cultivated the relationship, when you've talked about what God is doing in your life and the values that he's bringing into your life, and when your friend has an interest and they're raising the questions, that's the right time to answer and give the reason for the hope that you have, as, as Peter writes, and to explain why, why we believe. But there are many other times that living the gospel means not talking about the gospel, but bringing the gospel shalom into the systems of our world, into the neighborhoods of our world, and wanting the best for other people, and working for those causes to bring them into alignment with the ultimate restoration that God is going to fill this world with. Does that make sense to you? If it does, there's a huge uh, connection that all of a sudden comes together. Where God starts is in the human mind and the human heart, 
and he changes that first. So he changes our identity. He builds a relationship with us. But that relationship puts us in a place where we are servants of the kingdom of Christ. And that we're about kingdom work more and more, each in different ways in the midst of our society, rather, hide, rather than hiding from all the darkness that goes on in our world. So what does that mean? When you own a company, or you're the president of the company, or you're in the upper management of the company, part of the challenge is to think through not only the success of the business, but also the welfare of your employees. Do you treat them well? Do you pay them fairly? This is where God starts with Isaiah and saying, well, you know, my people are down and they're fasting and they're, 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 they're driving themselves silly with all these religious exercises that I didn't call for, by the way. What I really want them to do is pay your workers fairly. Well, what does this mean? It means that uh, when we work for somebody else, we work with excellence we try to give our best because we are doing so in the name of Jesus Christ. We are doing so because it will reflect on his glory, not just ourselves. It means that when you're involved in, in a neighborhood practice, even though you're not talking about Jesus, but you're involved in something that, that benefits the welfare of everybody else in your town, maybe you're serving in town government, maybe you're serving in city government, maybe you're involved in some kind of a local committee, that is God's work if you are bettering things for your neighbor. And somewhere down the line when somebody says, why are you doing this? Why are you serving on this town committee? Why, are you, why do you care about whether the library is, is done with excellence? Ah, it's because I serve Jesus and I want the children in my town to be able to read because their minds are going to grow and ultimately they're never going to be able to read the Bible and discover God if they can't first read and read well or learn and learn well. It means that when you are a teacher, you may be restricted in what you can say in the classroom or how open your Bible is on the desk or not, but every day when you are living out your values through kindness, through excellence, through personal care for every single child that you teach and through the prayers that you offer when they don't see you, that you are doing kingdom work. Right? All right, one more. One more observation. Our commitment to this kind of shalom is rewarded by God. It is rewarded. So we jump down to verse 8, Isaiah 58, verse 8. And God says, when you do these things, then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. The point that he's driving at is that biblical justice concerns cause our light to shine when we get involved in little by little trying to make this world more like the kingdom of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Other people begin to benefit from that, and they're drawn to you, and they're drawn to your faith. Therefore, our missional efforts shine a light on the gospel. Our missional efforts bring a measure of healing to our broken world. And God himself honors these, these efforts. 
It says that the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. I love that. The glory of, your, of the Lord will be your rear guard. What's that mean? When you are walking out and you are living out your faith in the midst of our society, trying to work for the shalom of all of your neighbors, God has your backside. He's your rear guard. I love that phrase. He's your rear guard. So while you're focusing on moving forward, he's got your backside. That's our God. He knows when you're doing his work, he is with you. I think the picture that is drawn here for those who, are, who were biblically minded in Isaiah's day, they would have gone all the way back to the days of the Exodus. Do you remember the scene where Moses is leading the people out of Egypt and they go up against the Red Sea? And then everybody says, Moses, why don't you take us here to the Red Sea? We, we can't get across this huge body of water. And then the Egyptians, who had initially let them go, changed their minds, and the Pharaoh says, chase after them. Get all the chariots, get all the warriors, and chase after them. Don't let them go. And then the Israelites start to freak out. Moses, you've left us here to a dead end, and here come the chariots, and we're all going to die. And all of a sudden, God causes this pillar of fire to come behind them that blocks the Egyptians. And when he tells Moses, I want you to do one thing, just hold up your arm and watch what happens. And God parts the sea, and they, they are miraculously rescued. But the rear guard was God through that pillar of fire. I think that's the picture that's given here of, of the times when God does things that we don't even fully understand, and yet he protects. And the implication is that he protects those who extend themselves to the poor, to the homeless, to the immigrant, to the oppressed, all the groups that are listed in Isaiah 58. And because true biblical justice is worship to God, that's what God is saying to Isaiah. It's the worship he desires. He hears our prayers. He hears our cries. And so while the chapter started off with them saying, you know, why don't you hear our cries when, when we're fasting more and more, now the answer comes in the middle of the chapter saying, do these basic things and I'll hear your cries. And so we see the, the circle completed and the, the picture closed. So... Why bring this up? First of all, for those of us who are working through this uh, book from Tim Keller that we've been working through that's dealing with the gospel and life, we come to that chapter this week that you're going to wrestle with in some of your small groups about what is the nature of, of real justice and what is biblical justice as opposed to all the other claims to social justice in this world. And as we move into the fall and Christmas season, let us remember that the true gospel is always linked to loving our neighbors. So I'm giving you a heads up. In, in the next month, we're going to start participating in Operation Christmas Child. And many of you will, will create a shoebox full of goodies that will go to some child somewhere else in the world. And we'll follow that up with Prison Fellowship's Angel Tree. And, and we're going to be ministering to kids who's, who have a parent in prison who cannot respond to them the way they would like. And there will be likely people in our own congregation who will need help over this winter season. And as we do these things... These are not add-ons. Add this is living out the gospel. This is answering the Lord's prayer every time, you know, asking the Lord again and again to bring his values to play in our world. Those who truly understand the gospel not only believe 
but they also embrace the all-encompassing life of shalom for all. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the challenges that you give us, not just to have a cerebral faith, but to have a faith that is lived out, a faith that impacts our world. We recognize that our world at times is wonderful, and our world at times is very, very difficult. We mourn with the people of the Tree of Life congregation in Pittsburgh this morning, and we we wonder, you know, why does this kind of senseless violence break out where a Jewish synagogue is attacked and defensive people are mowed down? Our hearts mourn with the African-American couple that were, were murdered a few, few days ago, senselessly, by someone simply wanting to expand hatred across the world. We live in a world where there are complex problems, Lord, and we can't solve them all. But we ask for your wisdom, and we ask that you would guide each and every one of us, and guide us also as a church, as we seek to figure out how to live out our faith in real, demonstrable ways that keep people asking questions about who this Jesus is who's changing us from the inside. Lord, I pray that you will bless and guide and walk with each person who's here today. Give us the courage not only to hold on to you in faith, but as your spirit guides us and prompts us to live it out in very small and practical ways every day, knowing that you are our rear guard. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me call on our, our ushers and uh,